Okay, so this week's Torah portion is Bullock. And I'll tell you something, for me, growing up as a child and throughout all my years, I always found Bullock to be one of the most fascinating parshiot. And I feel like we say that every week, but really Bullock is extremely, extremely unique. Almost, um, if you would take this example of, let's say like a TV series or a movie series or novel series, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, whatever it is. Imagine you had like a spin-off episode. Like the whole time you're following Harry Potter, you're following, I don't know who it is in Lord of the Rings, you're following the, the, the hobbits or whatever. And over here, now in the Torah, the Torah is always following from the Jewish perspective, from Moshe's perspective. All of a sudden we have a story, which we'll get into more on Shabbat. But all of a sudden we have a story that the entire thing is Balak and Bilam, and the Jewish people don't even know what's happening. The Jewish people are not, it's all from their perspective. Balak and Bilam having this whole interaction. A large portion of it is from Bilam's perspective, and it's absolutely fascinating, okay? So let's get the context of the story for a second. This story, the reason why I found it to be so fascinating and why we're going to go through, is because it really brings out the yin and yang of the world. Because this story, what happened was, is that the Jewish people were in the desert for 40 years, right? We're talking about the year 2488. And all of a sudden, this king, Balak, becomes petrified of the Jewish people. Why does he become petrified? Because they're camped next to him and they just destroyed the Amorites in battle. So he said, okay, I got to get my act together. I got to figure out a plan to beat them. So he is one of the first people that has this brilliant idea that he says, if I come with an army, even if I have the most fantastic military technology, even have the best army in the world, which he didn't, I'm going to lose. Because look what happened to the Egyptians. Look what happened to every army. They have no chance. But maybe if I beat them at their own game, then I'll be able to be successful. So what does he say? Let's tap into the supernatural. Let's tap into sorcery. And he hires a man named Bilam, which Bilam, the Medrash explains, he was a prophet to the same level as Moshe Rabbeinu, which you have to realize how intense that statement is because it says there was no other prophet in history like Moshe Rabbeinu amongst the Jewish prophets. So Bilam, we're talking about a man that was on an incredibly high spiritual level. He wasn't just another sorcerer or witch or wizard or whatever. We're talking about a very, very high level guy. And you may ask, how is that possible? Why would you possibly have a guy who's a, clearly a bad person who has the same powers as Moshe Rabbeinu? Why would God do that? Which that taps into the general question of the way the world is made. That in order for a person to have free choice, in order for us to this world to be the challenge that it presents you need to have good and evil be equal. So anything that you have powerful and good, there must be the same powerful and not good. And therefore, with a man as powerful as Moshe in the world, in order for there to be true free choice, God had to create a counterpart to Moshe, which was Bilam. So Balak knew about Bilam himself. It actually tells us the backstory a little bit, that Bilam prophesied that Balak would become the king. Because Balak was actually a unique king. Moab and Midian both appointed him as their king. He was a very, very powerful king and very well respected. So he sends a few men to Bilam. And he says, Bilam, come along. Let's go and curse the Jews. You're going to be their secret weapon that's going to beat them. He sends a few men. He sends some money. And Bilam has a dream. And God tells him, you can't go. You can't go. I don't allow you. So Bilam makes up an excuse because he was too haughty. He was too vain to say that God told me not he tells Balak, you didn't send me your best men. You didn't send me enough money. So Bilam, so Balak sends another round of men. And this time he asks God and he sends his best men. He sends a ton of money offer, a massive offer. And this time he asks God and God says, fine. Balak, no, Bilam 
excuse me, Bilam goes to saddle his donkey. And over here is where you see the yin-yang idea constantly throughout the story. He goes to saddle his donkey, wakes up early in the morning to saddle the donkey. And the Medrash tells us that God said to him at that moment, Abraham already beat you in this aspect. Which if you go all the way back to the story of the sacrificing of Isaac, the Akedas Yitzchak, over there, Abraham woke up early in the morning and he was running to do the mitzvah. And God said, oh, it shows you the idea that you have to rush to do a mitzvah and that makes it so much more powerful, so much more amazing. So Bilam was also on the anti-holiness. He was also trying to tap into this idea. So he woke up early in the morning and God said, Abraham already preceded you. You're already defeated in this aspect. You cannot beat him. Sure enough, they're going along the way. And here is where we encounter a fascinating idea, which I think is the key to this whole idea. If you want to know the solution, how do you beat love versus hate, good versus evil, yin, yang, whatever it is in the world, how does good prevail? We have right over here in this part of the story. Bilam is on the way and he's riding his donkey. And when he's riding the donkey, all of a sudden the donkey sees an angel in the path holding a sword. So the donkey tries to move out of the way. Three times we see they go back and forth. The donkey's trying to get out of the way. And three times Bilam whips the donkey and hits the donkey because he can't see the angel in front of him. The Zohar explains to us and the Talmud in Avodah Zarah. The reason why I'm quoting is because it's a very fascinating, very deep explanation. And therefore you need to know the sources to really understand where we're coming from with this. The donkey has a conversation with Bilam. God makes it that the donkey opens up his mouth. And when he's on the way, it actually tells us, according to the Talmud, that the Moabite officials were there because they were accompanying him on the way and they witnessed this entire scene. So the Talmud explains the conversation went like this. The Moabite dignitaries, they asked Bilam, why do you not ride a horse? Meaning, when we read the story, we take it for granted, he's riding a donkey. Everybody in those days rode a horse. They didn't ride donkeys. So they asked him, why are you riding a donkey and not a horse? So Balaam responded that his horses were grazing in the field. So immediately the donkey opens up his mouth to Bilaam's great uh, dismay and shock. The donkey starts talking and he says, am I not your donkey? And Balaam says, just for carrying weight, just for carrying burdens. That's what you're my donkey for. And the donkey says, on which you have ridden. And Balaam says, only on occasion. Meaning basically he's embarrassed to admit that he uses a donkey and not a horse. And the donkey's embarrassing him in front of his, his cool friends, if you want to put it that way. Then he responds, the donkey responds, since you first started until now, you have always ridden on me. Moreover, by day, I provide you with riding and by night with intimacy. Now over here, we encounter a fascinating idea. In general, in the world, when it comes to the not holiness, in Kabbalah, they call it the klipa, they call it the sitra achra, the other side. In order to tap into the other side, you need to be doing devious, terrible acts. And that's how they take power. Okay, in general, you see this still in the world. Sadly, sometimes there's sadist cults or whatever. They do murder rituals. That's how you tap into the, the power of the devil, the whatever it's called, the Illuminati, whatever it is. You know, you make these evil deals and then it gives you power. So we see over here that Bilam was intimate with his donkey. And that was a way that he tapped into these powers by doing something so despicable that therefore he was able to tap into these powers. And the Moabite men that saw this, they quipped and they said to themselves, look at this guy. He's being embarrassed by his donkey. He's going to save us from the Jewish people. This is the guy that we're bringing. They made fun of him. So why did God do this? And why do I say this is the key? To be able to beat, to love, hate, good and evil, the yin yang, the forces of the world. How does the good prevail? Why did God do this whole thing? This whole opening the donkey's mouth and making him going along the way. When you read it in the Chumash, that's what I'm saying about how fascinating the story is. It's such a bizarre like even while you're reading it, you're just like, why are we with this guy, Bilam and Balak? What's going on? This donkey, it's, it's so weird. 
The answer is, is that God wanted to bring a blessing through Bilam. In the end, if we jump to the end of the story, the blessings that Bilam gave the Jewish people are some of the most famous and some of the most amazing blessings that we have today. Unbelievable blessings. He even prophesied about the end of times, about the Messiah. And it's a whole thing what God does at the end. We're going to get there in a second. But over here, in order to make him a conduit, to be able to give such blessings, God had to crush his ego. Because God said, I cannot bless the Jewish people through such a person, such ego, such a man who thinks that he's so great that his powers come from himself, who does such despicable acts. There's no way my blessing can come through him. But if the ego is removed, then he can be a conduit for the greatest blessings. Which basically tells you in the world, and actually there's a Chabad Rebbe, which has an entire book, a whole Sefer where he discusses this idea, the key component that leads to so many fights and so many problems in society is ego. Ego is the ultimate problem of the human condition, if you want to call it like that. Meaning when a person is able to put themselves aside, all of a sudden the possibilities are endless, the world is open, you can change the world in so many different ways if just ego is set aside. If people can work together, the strength is unbelievable. But our ego always stands in the way. So we see over here Bilam, he's a guy who was an evil sorceress doing these, who knows what he was doing other than what we know from the story. And God is saying, I can work with you. You could be a man who gives blessings to the Jewish people that's remembered for all time. It even comes to the point, I don't want to spoil the Shabbat speech, so I'm not going to get too into this. It even comes to a point that they wanted to use these blessings and make them part of the Shema. They wanted to use his blessings and make them part of the daily Shema, not like the Shema just in the Torah, to make it something that we say twice a day. That's how amazing his blessings were. And all he needed to do was to remove the ego. So God said, okay, I'm not going to leave it up to you to work on your ego. I'll take care of your ego myself. He does this whole thing with the donkey and everything. And what you see throughout the story is God is constantly reminding Bilam, your power comes from me. Make no mistake. You are not a powerful person yourself. You may be on the same level as Moshe Rabbeinu in your powers, but the powers are for me. And again, we see that on the yang side or whatever. I don't understand really. I'm using yin and yang, but I don't really know yin and yang. So just the love and good is that Moshe Rabbeinu, what made him so great, what made him so special is that he always remembered my only greatness comes from the fact that God gave me these abilities. If these abilities were given to anybody else, they'd be the same. So you see, that's exactly the good and the bad. What's lacking? The bad has ego. The good has no ego. Moshe had no ego and therefore Moshe was the greatest prophet of all time. So then we see what ends off is that in the end, like I said, Bilam gets up on the mountain and Balak tries to take him to three different places because he tries to curse them. Every time he tries to curse the Jewish people and only blessings come out and amazing blessings. And God even made it that his voice echoed throughout the entire world. And Balak brings this guy and he keeps telling him like, what's going on, dude? You know, I brought you here to curse the people. And every time he's just blessing unbelievably. And he says, wow, Matovu Alecha Yaakov. Look at how great these people are. And just blessings and blessings and blessings. Because once the ego was removed, that was the only thing that could happen. Only goodness. So I want to share with you guys a story of a man, which I'll tell you, I, I could say, you can't really say chanced. I heard his story at a time that was very unexpected. I was with... Itty Seminary, my wife's seminary, Oria, on a trip in Poland. We were doing a Holocaust trip to Auschwitz and all around Poland, to Jewish heritage. And this was last year. And we're sitting on the bus. I'll tell you why it was very unexpected. It's a story of a Holocaust survivor on a Holocaust trip. So you might think that it was expected, but it was not expected. Because for me, what I realized is, a lot of times when you go on these trips, 
some people become very emotional and are very openly emotional, but some people are the opposite. Some people are stony the entire time because the emotions are so intense. You're walking through a place like Auschwitz, you're walking through a place like these, these death camps and they tell you who died here in the crematorium. Some people, the brain doesn't process it that well. Now I'm one of those guys. So every time we walked out into a, a concentration camp or whatever, I wasn't crying. It just was like, you're just trying to process what's going on around you. But when you get on the bus, your defenses sort of go down and they put on this video on the bus. And I'm thinking it's gonna be one of these cheesy, you know, bus videos. We're gonna watch some, whatever, like some uh, Jewish play or something. So it has to be Jewish for the seminary. And this guy gets on there and his name was Leslie Kleinman. And he was one of the most, like there's certain moments that you, like everything I'm telling you here was what I remembered from that moment. There's certain moments in your life that all of a sudden you get inspired and you have a moment where you're like, I'm never gonna forget this moment out of the blue. We're on the bus, we're not looking at anything, and this guy, Leslie Kleinman, gets on the, on the video. And he says his story, and he is one of the most, no exaggeration to me, I never forgot that moment, one of the most inspiring people I've ever seen in my life, and I'll tell you why. He grew up in Satmar, the original Satmar, not Satmar in New York, the original Satmar in Hungary. And the Nazis came one day, it was 1944, two policemen came into his house, and he said they were middle of Shabbos. And he said his family was extremely, extremely poor. He had one shirt for Shabbos and he even quipped, he said, we had one shirt for Shabbos, but Shabbos mattered more than the shirt. So Shabbos is one of his most beautiful memories, but they barely had clothing literally to wear. If it tore, if it got dirty, that's the shirt that he had. And he said there was two, he describes the scene, there was two candles burning in the window. The two policemen come bursting in and they grab his father. They were in the middle of singing Shalom Aleichem when the policemen entered. And sure enough, they took his father away and he never saw his father again. He describes, he's a very honest man. That's what made him so unique. He's very honest. And he said, my father was an extremely strict man. We were raised rigid, religious, ultra-Orthodox to the max you can imagine. He said, my father was a very strict man. But every time I speak about him, he's sobbing while he's talking. Every time I speak about him, I still cry. Even though we didn't get along so well. Leslie did not lead a religious life. You'll see his life afterwards. And we didn't get along well at all, but I never, every time I talk about my father, I feel only love and pain and never seeing him again. He said his mother, he loved dearly and he never forgot his mother one day the rest of his life. When they came, the Nazis told them they were being transported to a working camp. Nobody believed them. So the Nazis came back and said, you're going to a vineyard. The vineyard for some reason convinced them and they went, they ended up going to Auschwitz. When they came to Auschwitz, they told him, a man walked over to him, a Polish guy walked over to him and he said, how old are you? So he said, 14. He said, you're not 14 anymore, you're 17. Because if they ask you how old you are, you say 14, you're done. You say 17. He comes through the line, he gets separated from his mother and his younger brother who was two years old and he never sees them again. Right when he walks into the camp, he asks somebody in the camp, he says, where's my mother? He wants to find them, whatever. And he, the guy points at the chimney and he says, you're not uh, you know, processing what's going on over here. That's where they are. They're done. He never sees his family again. They're all gone. Every single member of his family is killed. Now you have to realize this is the moment where Leslie like completely changed my, I just was blew my mind. He gets a number tattooed on his arm. His number is 8230, okay? He looks at his arm amidst all of this, amidst his father being taken away, amidst finding out his mother's day, he looks at his arm and he says 8230 is the gematria, it's the numerical value of the word Ahava. Aleph, Hav, Bez, Hay. And he said, these guys, they made such a mistake. They tattooed a blessing on my arm because it's the numerical value of love. And to me, that was just, and you'll see a little bit more throughout the rest of his life, it's just a mind-blowing mentality 
that in such a moment, not just to be able to see, like to be able to look at, even if I today, I would say, saw the numbers 8230, I don't think I would put together that it's the numerical value of Ahava. But to be in that level of evil and that level of pain and that level of sorrow that you could look at the world and everything was dark. Like famously, Eli Wiesel said, he didn't understand, he was upset that the sun rose on Auschwitz. He looked at his arm and he saw love. And he said, they made a mistake, they blessed me. And then they gave him his uniform and it said KL on the uniform, which KL in German stands for concentration camp, like concentration Lauden, something like that, concentration camp. He looked at it and he said, they gave me my initials because my initials are Leslie Kleinman. So he said, look at that, they gave me a uniform with my initials on it, how nice they are. And every situation he was able to find how really the situation was a good situation. Every single thing that he did. He even said that he would pray every single day when he was in Auschwitz. He, at a certain point, decided that he was not going to be religious because when he was going into Auschwitz, he was begging God and he was praying to God to make a miracle happen. And he felt, meaning you can imagine at that moment when you feel your prayers are genuine, he was begging God, please make a miracle. Maybe a plane is going to come. Maybe a tank is going to come and save us. And nothing happened. And that moment was obviously a devastating moment for him to see his family be lost and praying to God to come. And there was no result. So his, his relationship with God was fractured in a way. But throughout the whole video, he says, never will they take my God from me. So he's a very interesting, you know, each person, their faith, very interesting man in his style. And he prayed every single day in Auschwitz. One day he even says that it was Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and nobody was doing anything. You have to imagine this boy, 14, 15 years old, nobody's doing anything. He decides on himself. He knows the whole Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur davening by heart because of his upbringing. He decides he's going to stand and quietly daven the whole Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur by himself. He said he looked up and there was a hundred people standing around him sobbing. Standing around because they all realized it was Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and this little boy is the one who's davening. So he speaks about how when he left the war, he decided that what was going to be his mission, what was he going to take out of it, is that he would beat the Nazis with love. And there's an organization called JRUCH, which is actually the same organization that took us on the trip, that he decided to fly to Auschwitz constantly. They said his trips like tripled or something, the circumference of the world, how many times he went to Auschwitz and back from England. At the end of his life, he lived in South End, England. He kept going back and forth to Poland to teach students that would come the message of love. And I'll just tell you one other snippet of his life that just like blew my mind. He, 11 years later, after the Holocaust, he ends up getting married. Who does he get married to? He gets married to a German woman, not Jewish. And when he got married, their people were astounded because they were just confused. Like maybe he has, you know, I forgot the name of the syndrome when somebody is abused. <laughs> Stockholm syndrome, maybe he has Stockholm syndrome, maybe he's confused. And he just, in his mind, he never saw, oh, that's one part that I'm missing. At the war ended, he was liberated by the Americans. There's a whole thing how he was going on a death march and he was wearing wooden clogs, he called them, wooden clogs, like wooden shoes. And they were walking so far, the wooden clogs were soaked with blood. And he was walking and walking and walking. He had two bigger friends that he couldn't, he was not gonna make the death march. Two bigger guys walked up next to him and picked up his arms and they walked together to the end. At the end of the death march, they were liberated. He hid in a foxhole, it was raining, a whole thing. And he sees an American guy comes to him, he says, he's American. After they liberated, the American soldier tells him, he says, for four days, he said, the Russians gave six days. For four days, the Americans said, no one's going to know. You could take our gun. If you see any Nazi or any German that you remember, you recognize their face over here in the, in the prisoner's camp, you can shoot them. And no one's going to say anything. And we're going to leave it as these four days of like, you know, a little bit of a, a revenge time. And then, of course, then, you know, international law, whatever kicks in. In his mind, 
it was unfathomable. It wasn't even something which like he felt hatred and then he had to hold himself back because murder was wrong. It was unfathomable. And he said this line, he said, because we're all humans in the end. In his mind, the Nazis were humans the same way we were humans. And that never changed throughout the entire Holocaust. He never demonized them. They never changed in his mind. They were always human beings. So in his mind, to shoot them was the same thing as shooting his Jewish brother. To them, it was the same thing. He never lost that image of goodness in the world. It was never tainted by any of his experiences. So later on, he falls in love and marries this German woman. And the way that it happened was he was going to break it off. Because he realized this is insane. You know, like a marriage is something which is supposed to last forever. I'm going to marry a German woman. It's not going to last. It's just not a smart shidduch, you know. Put it like that. And sure enough, when he's about to break it off with her, they get into a massive car accident. He comes out totally fine. She went flying through the windshield. Her whole face was completely cut up. When he went to visit her in the hospital, he comes into the hospital and somebody goes and spits in his face. And they say, dirty German. Because they realize that he's the, the boyfriend of the German woman. So they assume in the 1940s, 1950s of England, this was, they assume he's obviously German. Because who else would be dating a German woman? So somebody spits in his face and says, dirty German. He just said he wiped it away and smiled because he knew that he was Jewish. He knew he wasn't German. Didn't bother him one bit. Didn't correct them. Didn't say anything. He just walked on. Continued with his day. And he ends up marrying this woman for 50 years. They spend their life together until she passed away in Canada. And then she tells him before she dies, she says, Leslie, I think for you, especially if you're not going to have me, they were married for 50 very happy years. I think you should go back to your Jewish roots. And to end off just the perspective of this guy, he goes back to South End, England. He meets a fantastic rabbi in a beautiful Orthodox shul. And the rabbi invites him over for a Friday night meal. His way, I can't even really say it. Like you have to see it from his mouth. His way of describing how excited and how happy he was to be invited for a Friday night Shabbat meal is something which blew my mind. Because it's one thing, all the rest of the stuff he's talking about, it's hard for me to relate because I was never, thank God, in something like the Holocaust. When he speaks about a Friday night meal, that's when I realized how special he was. Is that he speaks about how the guy comes over to him and invites him over for a Friday night meal. And all the trauma from his childhood, where he remembers they only had two polkas of chicken and his father was inviting over guests. And then he's like, okay, we're going to be sharing these three little pieces of chicken. And all the Shabbosim that he starved and that he was hungry and they had guests and there was barely enough food. He says, in that moment, he said, oh, Hashem paid me back because I got invited over for one Friday night meal. The one Friday night meal, he said, we're good now. Now it's all good. Everything is happy because, and he went to the rabbi's house. The rabbi brought him back. He was a chazan, whatever. And Leslie ended up passing away recently in his very, very, very old years. I don't know how old he was exactly. I believe in his 90s in South End, England. And I think it's just the story of a man that gives the perspective of in this world, there's so much bad going on. There's so much not good that we could focus on. But to be able to look at the world and to see the goodness, to see how the world was created with these two powers and good is always meant to prevail. That's what we see in the story of Balak and Bilam is that the goodness will prevail. The goodness is stronger. The evil was only created for the goodness to prevail. It was just created as a test. Like the example given in the Zohar that it says that a king, he wants to test his son to see if his son is worthy of being the prince or the king. And he sends a prostitute to test his son. The prostitute knows that she's only there being sent by the king also. She also wants the boy to, to, to beat this test. And obviously in today's world, when we speak about things like the Holocaust and these traumas and challenges, it's very hard to whisk it away and say, oh, it's just a test. It's very hard for us to see that. That's what makes it a true test. But to look at the world like Leslie, a practical human being, he was not, meaning in my eyes, he's a tzaddik, but he was not a big rabbi. He was married to a non-Jewish woman. He wasn't the most religious man in the whole world. But if you look at a human being like that, 
He was able to look at the most evil time in, in our history. And God willing, will never be again. And he was able to come out and only see love. Literally only Ahava, only goodness, only kindness in the world. That I think is really something we could take out of this week's Torah portion. And from Leslie Elazar Kleinman. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Hashem.